Good morning, and welcome to another episode of the Cornerstones Podcast. My name is Parker Billings, and I am joined with a lovely and legendary couple, BJ and Sheila Weber. Welcome to the podcast, Webbers. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Parker. It's uh, fun to be with you. Great, great. I'm very glad you two joined. Uh, the Webbers have been married longer than all the other ten couples I've interviewed so far combined. So they definitely <laughs> have a lot of a lot of wisdom to give. And uh, not only have they been married for over forty years, but Sheila started National Marriage Week here in the United States. And BJ, um, as part of his occupation, has been counseling couples pre-marriage and um, helping couples in the middle of their any troubles that they have during their marriage. So they not only have a lot of experience to get from their own relationship, but they um, are very involved with the concept of marriage and relationships in general. So definitely very excited. Um, before we dive in, I'll just say how I know the Webbers. So I met BJ about seven or eight years ago through a Christian men's group called New Canaan Society. Uh, it's a great organization my dad introduced me to. BJ and I linked up, became friends quickly, and have been having uh, almost weekly dinners at his his house here in New York for about um, the past six years. And I met Sheila, of course, through BJ, who has become a great friend as well. And uh, I can see why BJ is such a good person because Sheila has turned him into that great person. (laughs) (laughs) Compliments him very well. (laughs) (laughs) Sheila has turned uh, BJ from a beast into a beauty for sure. So um, very happy to have them. And just as a reminder for anyone who might be a first-time listener, Cornerstones Podcast is a place where couples like BJ and Sheila can come here and share the story of how they met, how they built their relationships, um, any obstacles they'd overcome together, and just any lessons learned. So the the goal is that we're all blessed to be a blessing, and that through these stories, we can impact others and inspire others. So without further ado, uh, Sheila, would you like to just introduce yourself quickly and say a little about who you are? Sure. So I'm Sheila Weber, and I moved to Manhattan right after graduating from college, and I got a job as a writer at McCall's Magazine, and I I thought I would only stay for a year, and here I am, 42 years later, and uh, I met my husband a few years after being here, and we'll talk about that, but we have um, raised a son and a daughter who are now both married with children of their own. And so we just a few weeks ago became the proud grandparents of seven children, seven grandchildren. And I, I have over the course of the last few decades had a career in public relations and uh, generated a lot of uh, projects, mm-hmm. um, National Marriage Week being one of them. And I've, I helped found the New York Fellowship, which is BJ's, the outlet for BJ's private pastoral care with leaders and projects to, uh, projects for the poor that we've helped develop. Very good. And BJ, can you give a little bit about who you are? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I'm BJ Weber, and um, I came to uh, New York City in uh, January 1979 to live and work with the poor. And it certainly was a temporary idea until I could find out my real vocation. Um, but uh, I was surprised by joy. And, uh, and four or five months into my uh, work with the poor in a Times Square mission called the Lambs Mission, I worked with street kids and teenage prostitutes and young drug addicts. Uh, during the middle of that, I met my wife, uh, Sheila. And uh, we saw each other and began dating. And um, a year and a half later or so, we got married. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we're definitely going to unpack that a little bit. Um, so could you tell the story of how you two met, BJ or Sheila? One of you can start. <laughs> okay. I'll start because I had been here for a couple of years. And a friend of mine worked at the Lamb's Mission, and my dad was a minister in D.C. and wanted to come up and see it. So I called her, and she arranged uh, for us to come over on a Saturday and take a tour. And she she had sort of told BJ about me. I think she was trying to set us up. She did not tell me. <laughs> so 
uh, we kept waiting and waiting around this mission for this guy named BJ to show us around. And he, and he was late. So we went next door. Somebody else showed us around the mission. We went next door to the China Bowl uh, to have dinner. And, and he comes rushing in. He said, I'm sorry, I'm late. And the, the, my rugby game was late. The subway was late. He was covered in mud. He had his little rugby shorts on. And he kind of looked over this table of about 12 people. My parents, my brothers, some people from the Lambs. Mm-hmm. And he caught my eye and he said, hey, I'm going to get a shower. I'll be right back. <laughs> so he came, he came back as fast as he could. The only empty seat was across from my mom and dad. And he sat down and basically his first date with me was with my mom and dad. He, he got every fact that he wanted to know in the next two hours um, by interviewing my mom and dad. So, <laughs> yeah, so periodically I would, I would. Her mom would laugh, and I'd look down at her, and I'd start staring at her, and I'd laugh, and I'd ask her some more questions. And, oh, and, and just, uh, uh, I said, well, Rona, is um, is Sheila dating anyone? And she said, well, she's practically engaged. And I said, well, I don't see a ring on her finger, so she's free game for me. Well, I that wasn't actually true, so I wasn't. I. <laughs> I was about to break up with this guy. <laughs> so anyway, BJ kind of took a lot of liberties. And at the end of the meal, he asked everyone to open up their fortune cookies and read their little piece of paper. So everyone so, ran around the table. I was the last one to open my fortune cookie. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, Eureka, today's your lucky day. You're going to meet a beautiful woman who works for McCall's magazine. And my mom just said, does it really say that? (laughs) And she, you know, and I just turned like, you know, shades of purple and slid under the table. And, uh, wow. Anyway. So we went next door to see the show at the lambs, which he had already seen six times, but he's, you know, then he said, let's all go out for cheesecake. And he just kept, you know, making sure that he got to know me that night. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at, at, over dessert, he told every funny story he knew, and my cheeks were hurting at the end of the night, and nobody else could say anything. And he <laughs> leans over to me and says, "Well, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue?" You know, which of course was very brazen. Right. And uh, and then we're we're walking back. We're down in this uh, the Broadway neighborhood, which was quite dangerous back in those days. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're walking back from the dessert, and everybody's getting to ready to say goodnight. And he asked for my phone number right in front of my father. So I couldn't really fiddle with the number. I had to give him the right number. And then, and I thought he was uh, quite something. So I said, well, how do you engage people in your street ministry? How do you, you know, reach out to these runaways and Mm -hmm. help them, you know? And jokingly, he just said, well, I just say, hey, baby. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm gassed. I'm like so prim and proper. I'm like, oh dear. Right. Um, so he was, he was, I thought he was really um, a little bit full of himself, <laughs> <laughs> but certainly intriguing. He was certainly right. intriguing and he made me laugh. He made me laugh a lot. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is, that's an incredible first night together. Um, <laughs> And BJ, you definitely leveraged Sheila's parents. <laughs> well, that was <laughs> you really, to your advantage. Yeah, it was fun. It was uh, it was a good first meeting. And then I said, uh, Sheila, I said, Sheila, has anybody ever told you how beautiful you are? <laughs> well, yeah. So by that point, I kind of had thought that this he's a little bit um, big for his britches. You know, I right. said, well. Actually, yes, they have. I just sort of wanted to <laughs> shock him as much as he was shocking me. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Give him a taste of his own medicine. Yeah. He, he liked that. I said, yes. yeah, yeah. So the, so the next day I called her that afternoon. I gave her a call and she answers the phone and she said, oh, BJ Weber. Oh, it's so great. I had such a great time with you last night. Great. It's fun that you called me. And I'm thinking, whoa, man, you did a home run last night, dude. Yeah. yeah, but he didn't know that I was sitting right next to this 
quasi-boyfriend when I answered the phone and I wanted to make sure that guy knew there were other people lining up for me. <laughs> you know, so I, right, I, right. This, I said, oh, hi, BJ. <laughs> you know, wow. Wow. But anyway, yeah. You know, we, we had a first date and uh, I would say that BJ's biggest quality is that he is persistent mm-hmm. because um, he, uh, you know, he had lived in a monastery for six years. He had just landed in New York with, without a big game plan for um, his future. He'd finished seminary and I thought, well, he'll probably be a, a pastor. And I understood that because my dad was a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, but um Anyway, he was. I, I discovered that he was nine years older than I was, and that was sort of a gulp at first. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I just uh, I went away on a. Well, we dated for five months, and he proposed, which is quite soon. I was wow. just turned twenty four, which felt a little young. I didn't expect all that, and um, but I was going off for a three month tour across the country to promote the Jesus film. I had been in Israel as an actress in the film. And I said, well, I'm not going to say no, but I, I, I can't say yes. Right. Right. Uh, let me take the next three months in my travels and we'll be in touch. We'll keep in touch and I'll pray about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think some other guys would have been daunted by my hesitancy, but BJ is undaunted <laughs> at, at all levels of life. He's still undaunted. Right. And so uh, when I got back, we, I finally got to go back to Iowa and meet his parents and the nuns and the monks who had had such a profound impact on him. And that was important for me to understand his background. And um, so finally, by the holidays, I had said yes to his persistent question. I, you know, right. I, he would ask me every day, are you going to marry me? And I said, I don't know. Ask me tomorrow. So he so would. She said maybe. So I said, maybe. <laughs> yes. And maybe it's better than a no. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to BJ, BJ uh, red lights and yellow lights are always really green lights to BJ. <laughs> so, so when you two were dating, what qualities uh, did you see in each other that were attractive? I know, Sheila, you mentioned BJ's, BJ was persistent. Um, but what other qualities did you, see, did you two see in each other that you were attracted to? Well, for me, uh, um, just some physical attributes. She smiled and laughed. I loved her laughter. And, and that really was very attractive. And, um, mm-hmm. and she was fun, alert, and was poised. And was had style and class, which is a difference. And um, so I just kind of had this tremendous attraction for the whole person. And she had a deep sense of of, of Christ, which was very important for me. Right. And that kind of superseded every all the other attributes. But essentially, uh, she had a deep sense of character, and her character was sterling and fun at the same time. So mm-hmm. those were uh, attributes that really were an attraction and fun for me. And exploring those relationally and dating and laughing and going to shows and picnics in the park and ice creams in Central Park. And those were uh, great moments of communication, friendship, and, and real intimacy. Mm-hmm. Things, yeah. that, things that last. And then are important. They were, you know, people always somehow think equate intimacy as a sexual uh, connotation or something. But intimacy is about the whole person and freedom to talk to that person and be vulnerable and transparent and and loving. And those came at at, at a flood with her. So it was really fun for me to see the joy that she was for my life and still is, by the way. I think that is an important. Uh, litmus test to the ability to be completely who you are with someone. And um, so for me, I had just recently come to this great um, moment in my life where I decided I would not date anybody who didn't share the level of faith conviction that I had. Mm-hmm. And I I had gone for, a, you know, several years in high school, well, mostly college where I dated uh, guys who did not share my faith 
And I felt that it was a real, it really pulled me away from, from my own um, walk with Christ. And I just, I just sort of came to that level of commitment to the Lord. And so some of the guys that I dated who were Christians seemed, uh, I'm a strong woman. So I I felt like they were not strong enough for me. (laughs) And I, I, I thought, you know what, I, I can't just run over someone who's seems a little, uh, mamsy pamsy or weaker. (laughs) And, and BJ was a very strong, Mm -hmm. uh, character. Um, now that comes with some challenges, you know, as we've discovered, as we got into our marriage, we realized, wow, this also comes with challenges to be married to strong people. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, so first and foremost, he was a believer and very committed to Christ and looked like he was destined to a ministry. Mm -hmm. Secondly, he was a leader. And thirdly, he made me laugh. And it was just, you know, he just, that's a big deal to be fun, you know? So he was a lot of fun. Right. Fun, adventuresome. And it sounds like both of you had the foundational, had foundational similarities, um, aka your faith and character and vulnerability. And then you're able to also have other qualities such as, as you just mentioned, Sheila, fun and laughter and, and the ability to just be yourself with the person and, um, you know, have kind of goofy moments together, which continue to, to create your strong bond. That's right. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it's interesting. All those character issues and things we described were implicit. Those were not discussion points. Those were just kind of these existential intimacy that just kind of flowed out of being together. Right. And they, they were kind of understood as kind of foundational and you could see it manifested in our actions and how we cared for each other and the people we were involved with and the work we were called to. So it wasn't like you had this litmus test that you checked all the boxes. All those boxes were uh, were existentially and brought into uh, communication and friendship and actually living a life together. And that was kind of the foundation for uh, the beginning of our marriage, really. Mm-hmm. And BJ, I remember you said to me one time, you know, write down five qualities you look for in a woman. Yeah. And then when you go out with that woman and she checks all those boxes, you won't even realize it in the moment. That's right. You just be, you'll be so consumed by who she is and the chemistry that you have. And then when you go home later at night and you think about it, you're like, wow, she actually did check those boxes. And, um, you know, that seems like a... When you're when you're so you know immersed in that person, that seems like a relationship that's healthy. And and going back to the faith part, it must be very refreshing too, just to be on the same level with somebody. I know in New York, there's people who have all kinds of different beliefs, but when you do have the same core values as somebody, it's very refreshing. And it's almost like you take a deep breath and you say, "Wow, yeah, you know, we we I don't have to kind of explain myself. We already connect on a very deep level." Well, it's interesting because I was making 40 bucks a week plus room and board, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I had this this kind of this poverty ethos that was like, you know, I'm not going to own anything. I'm going to live in poverty. Right. Sheila said, well, if you want to move forward with me, you're going to actually have a salary. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, Sheila was not gold digging, but she also didn't want to. Um... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, I it was like jumping off a cliff to marry a street minister and go move to Times Square for five years. The first five years of our marriage, I lived in a street mission. So, no, <laughs> I was not. I was a pretty modest person. But when he started saying, you know, certain things that he didn't believe in this and that in terms of, oh, I don't believe in home ownership. I might not even I might be <laughs> radical enough to not even believe in paying taxes. And then I said, well, you should date someone else. <laughs> yeah, 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 really date somebody besides me because that's not going to work <laughs> right those are bj's those are bj's hippie days <laughs> yeah. well I, I i think those were um idealism that was wrought in my own preparation for service to christ because spending five or six years in the monastery where right you have no money you're taken care of but you're just living on the land and 
and um, and you live for Christ in a very unique, solitary, singular way. So you try to trans translate that into a, a marriage with responsibility. It takes a while to kind of get adjusted to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So you got married, um, or Sheila, you accepted BJ's proposal later that year mm-hmm. um, after you had met, and then you got married. And then what was it like as, you know, as you two were both trying to find your career and navigate marriage life? How did how did those two kind of reconcile? Well, we had an unusual circumstance that we were given a free apartment in this mission. Mm-hmm. And BJ, uh, you know, served a street ministry and started meals, pro- a meal program for the homeless and a medical center for the homeless and was rescuing kids and sending them back to their parents. And, and meanwhile, I was going off to a public relations job from nine to five here in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was a part of this community. There were 40 uh, young people who lived in this community, as well as um, a church that met in the theater. And there was a theater program. Um, so it was, a, it was unusual. And there were, there were a lot of stresses attached with that because we were newlyweds in a building with just 40 people at all times and sometimes hundreds of people in the building. And it was sort of like, whoa, I can't, there were no cell phones. So I'm like, where's BJ? You know, where is he? Like we never, we never knew where he was. He was on that floor, that floor talking to this person. And, Mm -hmm. and there were just stresses of, you know, how much, do we, uh, how much do we kind of expend ourselves uh, for others and how much do we reserve uh, time for each other? So we, we had a little bit of an unusual circumstance. Well, that was a lot. There was a lot of stress because I felt so compelled and called to care for the poor. Right. And I think what was, I think maybe it was like our fourth year or something of marriage or I can't remember exactly, but. I just collapsed in kind of this uh, had mononucleosis, and I just I kind of have a had breakdown. I was a young, healthy rugby guy, but yet here I had a breakdown of my, my physical well being. That kind of reoriented boundaries and expectations for me. So, and then shortly after that, um, we we left that ministry, and uh, uh, we began a nonprofit called the New York Fellowship. Right. So we knew that this was a a mission led by the Church of the Nazarene, and there were wonderful people there, but that was not our background. And we knew we weren't going to, you know, bring home a baby to that situation. And so uh, we we had a just a a completely different part of the story is that some business leaders came to us and said they would help us start an outreach on Wall Street. And... um, BJ had already been networking with leaders in the city and doing some chaplaincy work for professional sports teams. And it was a natural segue toward his gifts. Um, so before there were a lot of other churches, now there are all kinds of new churches that have been started in New York and people in ministry. But in those days, there were not many. Mm-hmm. And there were not many outlets for someone to even find a Bible study group. Mm-hmm. So um, we had some business leaders uh, help us form the New York Fellowship and, you know, provided enough funding. Um, So that was the next step. And uh, we moved to a a two-bedroom, two-floor rental of a brownstone Mm -hmm. and brought home our son and daughter and raised them in midtown Manhattan. And now this brownstone is where we still are. Mm -hmm. And the the bottom two floors of the brownstone was was owned by the landlady and she passed away when our kids were about to hit puberty. Mm-hmm. And so the ministry bought the bottom two floors of the home for offices and gathering and, and ministry purposes. And the Weber's brought, bought the top two floors. And, mm. and so it's been um, a great adventure. 36 years. We've had this, this uh, miracle Mm-hmm. Um, house in Midtown Manhattan, where thousands of people have come and gone, and we've been able to uh, host and do teaching and 
and all kinds of spiritual support, mm-hmm. spiritual support and intervention for um, countless numbers of people in in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the it's a it's a wonderful place, and Sheila, I'm sure it was an upgrade to the original apartment in the Lambs <laughs> that you and VJ originally lived in. Um, but yeah, it's been admirable to see you two just. You two definitely have the gift of hospitality, and you open up your home to so many people. Um, and just you know, when I've been in, in the house, it just feels like a great place for people to, to connect and form friendships or romantic relationships. Um, and you two, it's a testimony to who you are as people that you create that kind of setting and environment. So, well, thanks. Uh, yeah. So, were there any? big seminal moments in your marriage um, over the past 42 years that, you know, you look back and you say like, wow, that was a defining moment or, you know, that was a big pivotal time in our life. Um, Obviously starting the New York fellowship, I'm sure it was one of those seminal moments, but um, anything else you look back at and you say that was a, you know, a great turning point or a lesson we learned. Um, Yes. I, um, we, BJ was helping a lot of couples who were really going through trauma. And we discovered a wonderful place called the Lake Martin marriage retreat, which now no longer exists, but it was a place where this fantastic uh, couple would take four couples under their auspices for eight days. And they would do individual therapy with each of these couples at the same time, um, collective teaching and, these, these couples would have meals together and we would, so we sent several people and it, it brought about the restoration of their marriage, those eight days of intensive uh, therapy. And one of the couples, and it was not intended just for people in trauma, but one of the couples said, gosh, we've enjoyed this so much. We'd like to give you the gift because it's just a great uh, support and place of restoration for any marriage. Right. And so we were able to go and I think it was pivotal because I think that we had neglected um, taking care of things that we were sort of shoving under the rug. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as I was raising children in the city, which is stressful to begin with, and BJ was out and about and super busy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we were not, we were not, we were not actively dealing with um, the sort of the neglect to, um, some of the choices we could have been making better choices mm-hmm. because I was starting to get worn down. I was starting to get resentful. Mm-hmm. Um, BJ wasn't aware of it. He didn't really. I take, didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this environment um, really helped us uh, helped us take the time to listen to each other. So. Wow. I would I would say that I think there are very few married couples that don't need a retuning and that don't get themselves into some difficult spots because uh, they they you know couples do need help to navigate the the emotional stresses that they live with mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and unfortunately if they don't get the help or they don't have the spiritual resources. Or maturity, they just start to blame each other so much, and that that's what leads to the downward spiral of divorce. Mm-hmm. And they don't think there's any hope. Initially, I didn't want to hear any of that because um, I was comfortable in my denial. <laughs> right, right. But as as uh, as this uh, conference wore on, mm-hmm. I began to have some good self reflection, and it really was helpful and pivotal in how we move forward from there and um, we learned a lot of lessons about um, how to listen and to uh, each other I, I think other pivotal moments were for us that I, I just realized that I was doing too much right and um, we had a we had a, a a person that was sent to us who was a former CEO of McKinsey Corporation mm-hmm. and uh, he interviewed me for two or three days, really. And then um, 
made some evaluations. And he said, well, look, he said, uh, you have all these different projects going on. That's not your calling. Your calling is to be with people. You're, you're not supposed to be a fundraiser to make an orphanage in Bolivia work, the Little League in East Harlem work. Mm. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to get back to your who you are. And that was a huge pivotal moment for me to have mm. that revelation uh, in in um, in my life. And that um, that changed a lot of things because I spun off these various projects that I had been working on. And I think that helped our marriage that I was able to not be so not be gone so much. Mm. And that was kind of a, a pivotal moment where there was an intervention of friendship and that, uh, that I actually took the uh, took the advice of this uh, wonderful man and it changed our lives. It really did. Yeah. The other thing I think that BJ was um, 33 when we got married and had obviously lived a very independent life um, for, for much of his adulthood. And I think when people do get married later, there's an advantage because they're more mature and they know themselves and they maybe make better choice of a spouse. But at the same time, they're so used to independent independence and 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 it's a it's a quandary because our culture values independence so much that it can be um a barrier to what marriage is supposed to be and marriage is supposed to be the uniting of two lives and the respectful you know decision making of two people coming together Mm-hmm. And so when one person just says, well, I'm just independent and I don't need to check in with my spouse that, you know, that we kind of lived through a little bit of that. Um, yeah. so, you know, that was, that was a learning curve to kind of say, well, I need to really ask my wife about that. <laughs> well, well, part, part of that manifest self in finances, because right. I was, I was not very good with finances, but here I was managing it. Right. And um, so after some pretty stupid investments that I made, uh, I made a determination just to release all that to my wife. And uh, that has been very peaceful for me, actually. And she does a, such a great job. But it was hard to get out of what you, expectations of uh, mm-hmm. what, what a man is supposed to do, what a woman is supposed to do. And uh, that was I was thankful for that. And still am to this very day because uh, mm-hmm. I feel somewhat secure from our finances because Sheila has done such a good job with that. I think you have to learn to go with your gift. Yeah. You know, they're in certain, in certain married couples, uh, you know, the husband is very, very gifted in the area of finances and others. It's the woman. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's important to know what your gift mix is and to let each other flourish in the area where you're gifted. Uh, the, the other thing that was pivotal was when a friend of ours developed, um, this love and respect speaker series. And um, he's very well known. And some of your listeners may have heard of Emerson Egridge, Dr. Emerson Egridge, who wrote the best-selling book, Love and Respect. But he actually um, developed the program within the confines of the New York Fellowship. He came here and we set up um, groups for him to work with as he was developing his workbook and his his premise in writing his book, he was actually a project of New York Fellowship for two years until he launched independently. But that concept, I want to explain to your listeners, because I really didn't understand it before. And so, of course, we all need to feel loved and we all need to be respected. And this is how we need to treat other people. But uh, Dr. Eggridge's uh, premise from Met much of his uh, psychological work and studies and also 20 years of counseling couples as a pastor, he has determined that the deepest need of a woman is to feel loved, whereas the deepest need of a man is to feel respected. Mm. And there's such a subtle difference, but powerfully so. Um, And so when I was getting frustrated because I didn't feel loved, I would speak in tones of disrespect. And those tones were very inflammatory in my husband's mind that he he didn't respond well when I got upset. And so when women get upset and they fly off the handle, mm-hmm. the husband doesn't 
feel like he's being spoken to with respect. And therefore, he reacts without love. So you get this crazy cycle. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. And then, mm-hmm. then of course, she feels that she's not loved. And it just keeps spinning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to learn to identify it. And then Emerson talks about how to jump off that crazy cycle. And that even if your spouse is not giving you what you need, you can choose to respond in a way that gives them what they need. Um, so I, you know, I really started to look at, can I communicate with my husband in a way that he'll hear me? And that means tones of respect. At the same time, he had to kind of look at his own choices and his own behaviors and say, does this make my wife feel loved? Right. Um, so anyway, I, those were, those were really powerful. Uh, it's a simple concept, but it changed the way that we each approached each other. It's a biblical concept, uh, as you know, in Ephesians. Right. But it's important to understand that uh, you can have all the knowledge and information to do something uh, appropriate, but if you don't do it, it's just knowledge and information. Mm-hmm. And so I think you, you have to be willing to want to change. And most people always accuse the other person of not changing and then try to control the other person. The bottom line is you have to, you have to see yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, these are the things that have to change in my life. And these are the things that I have to do in order that my spouse might respect me and that I can love her. And I think these are areas that are very important. And a lot of it has to do with our own, our own, Raised how we were raised and understood. I, I came from a pretty dysfunctional background, and and uh, I had to work through a lot of painful issues in, in order to communicate with my wife appropriately and lovingly. Mm-hmm. And BJ, as we've talked about recently, as recent as the other night on Wednesday, about the concept of humility. It sounds like that is humility in full form, which is if there's issues, saying. Not hey, you have to do better, and you have to change, and you have you're not, you're the reason why, but it's taking responsibility for your own actions, and saying, you know, I'm going to be the one that changes first in order to elicit love or respect from the other person, not demand that they show me love and respect first. And it sounds like taking that first step, um, in the grace of humility, is, you know, be, Sheila, what you talked about about the first step towards getting off that crazy cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of you know just as you of you two were talking about. It sounds like a lot of lessons uh, were picked up upon, like keeping the main thing the main thing, and um, prioritization, and confronting things as they come about, not putting them under the surface. And BJ, you know, you have a very successful ministry and organization here, and Sheila has to you. And BJ, I'm sure you can easily get caught up in that success and, you know, not realize like, Hey, maybe there's some things at home I should, uh, I should discuss or address, um, you know, and put my career. And I'm sure that's a, a very common thing in New York, especially for New Yorkers to realize, you know, Hey, what, what is the main thing in my life? And am I neglecting that? Well, I think there's, I think there's a couple other things that we should throw into this mix before we sign off here. Mm-hmm. One is um, is our prayer life and the life in Christ that we actually have a devotional life. Not, we do devotions together, not as consistently as you know every day, but we do have devotions together. Enjoy that. We pray together. Uh, but I've I've always been a person that would take retreats. I will I will go for a week out to the monastery. Mm-hmm. You know for a prayer retreat. And I did that for years and years and years. And I think that has benefited my family and my, and my, uh, my marriage a lot that I actually would take a week of my life mm. and dedicate that towards, um, growing and deepening my faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of has really been foundational for all of us, for both of us, actually, mm-hmm. that we could have our own times of a deepening our spiritual life. And, um, that really kind of supersedes all of our emotional needs, and everything else, and what we're working on. And uh, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to kind of uh, lose track of that. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, I interviewed another couple maybe a month ago, and one concept that they like that they've instilled in their marriage is that their relationship is actually a triangle with God at the top of the triangle and the both of them at the bottom corners of the triangle. And they're saying they believe that as they grow closer to God, like a triangle, they actually grow closer to each other. And BJ, you know, as you mentioned, taking that week and resetting and coming back with, you know, a fresh mind and fresh heart can, it's like taking one step back to go three steps forward. Yeah. Look, I think, and this may be my final thought on this, is that, um, look, we've been married 41 years. We took vows, uh, you know, in richness or poor, health or sickness, until death do his part. And so now I, I'm battling a life-threatening cancer. Mm. And the tenderness and the, the attentiveness that my wife has towards me is extraordinary. And it is it's wrought in the power of not just the vows, but the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in those vows that allow us to, to live, love, and to care for one another. So mm. uh, here I am, uh, you know, married 41 years, and my beloved wife um, is caring for me with extraordinary love and tenderness. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, you wrote a, a beautiful piece about Sheila in a newsletter last month um, about how she's been caring for you and... You know, BJ, you've been reminding me ever since you got cancer about the importance of marriage and that, you know, Sheila does is doing such an extraordinary job just as your partner and, you know, keeping the organization in check and helping you with your medicine and managing the family. And um, it's been great to witness that, Sheila, um, similar to the way my dad cared for my mom. You know, stepping right. up, stepping right. up to the plate when, when things are things don't go as planned. So, and I, and I'd like to encourage anybody that's um, in the middle years of marriage where they might be struggling, because I think that it's important to know that there's some research that said that if people wait five years instead of jump to the potential of separation and divorce, if they wait five years, that things will seem differently on the other side of those five years. Mm-hmm. But it's so important not to let resentment take hold. It's, it's like a strong root of bitterness. And once you start mm-hmm. realizing that there's some resentment on either side or either party, you have got to go get help and you can work your way out of that resentment. You can. Um, people need to really identify it and realize that there is healing and there's a way to to make different choices as a couple and and you know change some behaviors and change some habits or family practices. And so I just want to encourage people that um, it is important to work through these things because when you everybody wants lifelong lasting love. And that's what marriage is all about. That's why cohabitation doesn't usually, the statistics are not good. Mm -hmm. Cohabitation doesn't have good statistics. And so I would encourage people to, you know, to make a commitment to each other prayerfully Mm -hmm. before they were to uh, go down the road of cohabitating. Um, But, but it doesn't lead you to that vow and the vow your vows matter and there's safety in the vow. I mean, if you feel like at the height of some of our conflict, Mm -hmm. we knew that we had a vow, we had a vow before Christ. Mm -hmm. And so there was a security in knowing that we weren't going to start using the D word, which is the divorce word, Mm -hmm. because our vow was very um, cemented in each of us. So if you have that vow, then you're you're like, why, why are we going to be miserable? Let's, Let's recreate this to be, we want to be happy. Right, right. So there's, there's real security in the vow if you say, look, we're in this, we're in it. So let's make this work and let's make, let's find ways to make us happy and joyful instead of running away from it. Mm-hmm. And making that commitment is really also about being personally bigger than yourself and mm-hmm. It sounds, you know, supernaturally and naturally here on earth. And 
I think when you have that perspective, when you say, yes, Sheila, as you mentioned, I'm going to make a vow before Christ, then you're inviting him into your marriage. And if he's at the center, then it can't fail. And um, it keeps things in perspective, I feel like. And allows you also to reach out to community. I see you too went to Lake Martin and it, it opens up your marriage to community and say, you know, yeah, we, we are part of this larger family and we owe it to them. We owe it to God. We owe it to each other to be happy because she, as you mentioned, you know, you didn't marry BJ and BJ didn't marry you to not be happy. Right. Nobody marries <laughs> someone else to say, you know, I hope this doesn't work. All right. I want to be miserable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the resentment part you talked about, Sheila, too, is interesting because I feel like it's it's almost resentment is almost like carbon monoxide where you can't really see it in somebody else, but it starts to brew and brew, and then it comes out in a way that's almost dynamic and explosive. And obviously, different couples have different ways of dealing with that. But I think that was very prudent advice that you gave Sheila about um, as soon as you feel it or as soon as you notice it, you know, that's when you have to say, okay, cards are down. We have to just. Mm-hmm. We have to address mm-hmm. this. Right. You know. All right, brother. And well, I wanted to um just as a as a final question. Um so I know you've been so you'll be married 42 years this year. And when you first got married, um, you know, I heard Tim Keller say something one time about I in the, his book, The Meaning of Marriage, about you know, when you marry someone, you see the potential of them and you see you see something in them that you know, as they grow and mature throughout the years that will take full form. And it's something, it's someone that you can really see yourself with. And I guess what my question to you is 42 years ago, when you first got married, um, how is that? Have you seen that fulfillment in each other? Have you seen that evolution? You know, Sheila, did you see in BJ somebody where you said, yeah, you know, I know this guy is, is going to, Yes, yes. Yeah. I uh, I think that we both have been uh, the refining fire for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, BJ, BJ, we laugh. We can laugh about it. He was the diamond in the rough. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I have like coached him, guided him. I'm like, Henny, there's a better way of saying that. Uh, <laughs> doing that and, uh, you know. I've, I've coached him on areas. Right. Right. But at the same time, I, I had my, um, deficiencies and he, he forced me to have to, you know, learn a level of generosity that I wasn't accustomed to. Mm. Uh, I grew up with sort of a, a, a modest background, so I wasn't used to being anything but frugal. And so, you know, he's taught me, a spirit of generosity. And he's also taught me how to um, not hold on to things, hold life loosely and, and trust uh, also very, very watchful as to what is God saying to us, you know? So we, we can bring each other along spiritually to, to say, okay, this is not just about what Sheila wants. This is not just about what BJ wants. What does the Lord want? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to pray about where is he leading us? Uh, I think that's that's really revolutionary for some couples mm. to say, where what does the Lord want from the both of us? And sometimes that's character change and and you know uh change of habits or to loosen up if you're sort of a a a tight controlling type, you gotta loosen up mm-hmm. and you, you have to. You just can't keep saying, well, this is who I am, <laughs> you know? Right. And then on the other hand, you know, a person who's a little uh, too loose and isn't um, maybe considerate in their habits, you know, it could be messiness or lateness or anything. They have to, they have to really get with it, you know, yeah. like there's a, there's a, but it, we can, we can help each other. And the problem is that most couples get stuck in those differences. And they're not willing to move. They're they're lazy. There's a laziness factor, you know. Right. Um, and I would just really encourage people get off your lazy bench and you know get. This is marriage can be a wonderful way for the Lord to make you into someone who you wouldn't be otherwise. Mm. Yeah. I think I 
I think I would be a very different person today if I had never married. Mm. And I'm a, I'm a better person because I've had to navigate these relationship waters. And so is my husband. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's true. I, I think uh, I would just say amen to what Sheila has said. Um, I will add a couple of things. One is that um, marriage is a great attraction to the gospel as well, by the way. Mm. People see your life, live your life out. And they want part of that. They want to know how come that works. And it, ha- it can be implicit. It doesn't have to be. They can just see how you live. Mm. So I think out of that comes this generosity of spirit that it's an attraction to people that are interested in, in life and Christ. Like, why are you happy? Mm. And uh, I think that's important. And I think that the, one of the most important things that both of us have learned, and she underscored this, was that change is actually good. And that there's so many things that I've changed in my 40, 41 years of marriage. That it's just almost unrecognizable in some ways. So um, that's good because it's been to care for and love another, to do things that we never thought we could ever do. Mm. And um, it also has allowed us to serve and open our hearts, and our minds, our home to hundreds and hundreds of people mm. that come through or have come through our lives. So it's really you know, it's about loving one another as Christ has loved us. So that's kind of what we're, that's our mantra and we're sticking to it. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a beautiful note to end on. And, you know, you two are, are such an exemplary couple and, um, you know, even through things you've said to me or just through your actions, you know, I've learned so much. I know other people have learned a lot and I just want to thank you two again for, joining the podcast and opening up your heart and, and sharing your story. And there's no doubt that it's going to impact people and inspire people. And, you know, this, this is definitely going to be the most listened to episode. I can feel it already. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, thank you two very much again. um, It's it's a pleasure speaking with both of you about the story of your relationship and how you built your relationship and how you got through challenges together and just to see how flourishing you two are and, and um, thank you again, and I really appreciate it. Okay. It was great to be here. All right. Thank you.